the title of my sermon this morning is meant to sort of uh, ease any kind of barriers or difficulty or struggle or frustration that you may have uh, from this issue, maybe how it's been approached in your lifetime somewhere else in the past. Uh, The title of my sermon is, Why Are We So Funny About Our Money? Uh, And money's a funny thing, isn't it? Money does some very strange things to people. When you don't have enough of it, you do some funny things. When you got too much of it, you do some funny things. And so uh, we need some clarity, I believe, on what the Bible teaches about money. Clearly, it's one of those things that draws a line in the sand in terms of our relationship with God. It's uh, one of the barometers Jesus, I think, teaches of our hearts. And so my prayer, uh, as I've been preparing this text this week for you all, is that God would give us the spiritual ears to hear and obey. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago about how hearing, or last week, how hearing in in the, the Hebrew text is the same as obeying. And so this is really a spiritual issue in terms of how we relate to our wealth, how we handle it rightly. So let me give you a little background on the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. Um, One of the major efforts of Paul's third missionary journey, he went on three journeys, was to take up a special relief offering for the poor Christians that lived in Jerusalem. So you remember, the gospel started in Jerusalem. That was where the mother church was, and Pentecost happened, and all of a sudden, there's 3,000 plus people that belong to this new faith that they called the way. Well, the Christians living in Jerusalem eventually began to undergo some times of serious poverty. And so Paul was writing to some other churches that he had planted and asked them to give to those believers living in Jerusalem that were uh, impoverished and struggling. And one of these groups that he wrote to were the Corinthian believers. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 16, you will see that Paul talks about taking up an offering for those living in Jerusalem. But a year passes, and in the span of that year... Uh, the, the Corinthian believers had not done really anything to raise the money that Paul had asked them to raise in order to give to this relief offering to benefit those who were living in Jerusalem. So Paul puts in front of them an example, a model for them to follow of the Christian believers living in the region of Macedonia. You say, what in the world is Macedonia? It's, it's basically like a county. I think of regions like counties and you've got cities inside of the county or the region. And so in Macedonia, you had Philippi, you had Thessalonica, and you had Berea. Paul planted churches in those cities, and so now he's leaning back on them and saying, hey, would you please uh, be willing to contribute to the needs of your brothers and sisters living in Jerusalem? And when we look at their example, there's four principles that we learn for Christian giving from the example of those living in the region of Macedonia. So the first one... I want to move into quickly this morning is that grace is the greatest motivator for Christian giving. Grace is the greatest motivator for Christian giving. What's the motivator that we typically tend to appeal to or hear from? It's not grace. A lot of times it's guilt, okay, or greed. I'm picking a lot of G words so it's easy to remember. Grace is the great motivator, not guilt and not Greed. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes. He's a pastor and writer. He says this, Authentic salvation, authentic salvation changes how we relate to our wealth. 
If our professed salvation has not loosened our grip on our material things so that we become a giving people, then we really don't understand what it is to be saved at all, despite whatever arguments we would like to make. So if our walk with Christ doesn't sort of loosen some of the white knuckle grip that we have on the material things, our possessions in this life, then he would say, maybe you don't really understand what it means to be saved because Jesus came to us with an open-handed generosity. So when we look at verses 1 through 4, Paul gives a, a powerful example of what the grace of God can do in a person's life when it comes into our hearts and completely renovates the deadness therein. And it's this church is in Macedonia. He says these churches in the region of Macedonia were going through what he calls a severe test of affliction. Now that's kind of a strange way to word it in English. We just don't use that in our vernacular today. Literally what it means in the Greek is this. These people living in this region were being crushed by life. Because of their faith, living in a very... Uh, unwelcoming and unfriendly type of culture there in Macedonia. The culture was squeezing them and squeezing them tighter and harder. And life was becoming so difficult that they were wrung out and they were worn down for being Christians in an unchristian culture. Does that sound like anything you've bumped into since yesterday? Maybe? Yeah, we live in that kind of culture. Sometimes people bemoan the fact of how bad things are in America. Get an encycl- a Christian encyclopedia and go read about, uh, or a Christian commentary, and go read about the things that Paul was facing in his day. Nero was lighting uh, Rome at night with Christians. He was tarring them and setting them on fire and putting them on stakes and lighting the entire city of Rome. I mean, that's pretty bad. That's a pretty unfriendly culture for Paul to minister and preach and raise money for churches. A pretty bad place. And you would expect that these people living in Macedonia, man, they would just be sulking. They'd be pouting. They'd have their lips pooched out. I think my dad used to say, you better roll that back up or you're going to step on it, son. That's what we would expect from the people living in Macedonia. But Paul says they weren't pouting. They weren't sulking. If you look at verses 1 through 4, they were begging for the chance to share. They were urgently pleading to take part in what they saw as a ministry, an opportunity to serve those who they loved. And maybe they didn't even know that well, but they had the Spirit of God living in them. And so they said, it is a joy, it is a privilege for us to give. We say, wait a minute, wait, I thought they were the ones that were going through the severe test of affliction. They were being crushed by life, right? Where did they find the generosity To give, well, verse 1 clearly tells us God gave them the grace. It wasn't in in them naturally to want to do this before they came to Christ. But see, when we come to Christ and the grace of God floods our hearts and floods our lives, you know what happens? There's no room to contain it. When He floods our hearts and our lives, it floods out into the people living around us. And so they look at us and see someone that is gracious and generous and loving and giving and serving and surrendering and say, why do you do all those things? Let me tell you about Jesus who's loved me when I was unlovable. The word for grace in the Greek actually means gift. It means a gift. They were so moved by God's gift of Jesus in their lives that, listen, they were freed from greed. 
They were motivated to be giving and generous. And now, instead of this being an obligation that they've got to go, all right, here comes the plate again. Here, here's, well, checks in the mail. Instead of doing something like that, it wasn't an obligation. It was an opportunity to give and to serve and to worship the Lord. There's a story about two little boys. I've shared it here before, but I've got to share it again. Two little boys were given a box of chocolates by their grandpa. He gave each of them a box of chocolates. One little boy took his package, he tore it open, he ran into his room, he dove in that box, and in a couple of minutes, it was smeared all over his face, smeared all over his hands. He devoured every piece of chocolate in the box. Second little boy held the box and looked at it for a minute, unwrapped it, and lifted it up to his grandpa, and he said, Thank you for giving me these chocolates. He said, Here, you have the first piece. See what happens when we understand how much we've been given? When we step back and reflect on all that God has done for us in Christ, how in the world can He give us His very best and we say, well, I'll give you my last and my least and my littlest. That doesn't make any sense. J. Vernon McGee says this, The grace of God is the passion of God to share all His goodness with others. Isn't that good? The grace of God is the passion of God to share all His goodness with others. You know what my favorite part of Ephesians chapter 2 is? 1 through 10. You know it talks about how dead we were. We were objects of wrath. We were in bad shape. And then but God being rich in mercy made us alive. You know what my favorite part is? Is verse 7. You know what verse 7 says? It says that He raised us up so that for all eternity He could show us the goodness and kindness and grace and riches of Christ. You know what God loves to do in your life? Is share His goodness. But you know what we too often do? I don't want any, God. I don't want any. In a number of different ways, we tell God, I don't want you to share your goodness with me. I don't want to be blessed by you. We may think we're not doing that, but we, we do. And we had absolutely nothing to offer God, McGee says, so God gave himself to us. And it's grace, not guilt, that frees us from self and moves us to give. But second, sacrificing for others around us, you know where it starts? It starts with surrendering to God. Sacrificing for people around us begins with surrender to God. At the heart of Christian giving is a life that is totally, freely, joyfully surrendered to Jesus. We will never give like Jesus gave until we're surrendered in the way that Jesus surrendered to His Father. In verse 5, Paul highlights the surrendered attitude in the heart of the Macedonian Christians. Listen to what it says. They didn't do what we expected them to, Paul says. They gave themselves first to God and then to their brothers and their sisters in need. They were surrendered with everything they had. So when the need came, it's, hey man, this stuff doesn't belong to me anyway. I belong to the Lord. It all belongs to Him. And they shared it freely. There are stories of survivors from the Nazi death camps in World War II. I love history. I love to read about history. And there are stories from those death camps that tell us that one of the factors that helped people survive those death camps was an attitude of determined giving. It was the one thing that seemed to separate those who perished from those who were able to be psychologically and spiritually capable to survive. If a prisoner was on the brink of starvation and he had a little crust of bread, or a little piece of potato, and he could share it with someone around him, it did something inside of him that, that buoyed him. 
It lifted her. It enabled them to survive the worst time in their lives. One survivor said this, In our group we shared everything. And the moment one of the group ate something without sharing it, we knew it was the beginning of the end for him. Kent Hughes again says this, When we know that our lives are not our own, neither will we think our possessions are our own. It's easy to surrender a part when we've already given the whole. He says it won't do us any good to give our possessions to God unless we've given ourselves first. So if you come in here this morning and the, and the, and the plate passes you on any given Sunday and you reach in there and you grab that $5 or that $10 or that check you wrote out and your hand is just tied around that thing and you're like... And you just drop it like that and hold your breath. I don't think that's how 2 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us to give to the Lord. He wants us to surrender ourselves first. So let's get practical. Let me ask you a practical question here when it comes to tithing. Why is it so hard to get into a habit of disciplined tithing and giving when you've never done it before? Why is it so hard? Here's why it's difficult. In my, in, in my opinion, here's why it's difficult. Because it requires you to be surrendered to God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's some kind of significant link between our treasure and our heart. And so if our heart is closed off to Jesus, guess what else is going to be closed off? Our hands. We have to surrender ourselves to God first before we're willing to give anything that we think that belongs to us or that we have. Third, God wants us to continually grow in our giving. J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, when it comes to giving, he said, some Christians stop at nothing. You get that? You get that? When it comes to giving, some Christians, some people stop at nothing. Not mean that they never stop, but they stop at nothing and they don't give anything beyond nothing. You've got to read J. Vernon McGee and I guess hear some of his messages to kind of catch the humor in that. But God wants us to grow. Paul in verse 7 commends the Corinthian church. He says you're doing well in so many ways. He says you're a church that is filled with faith and you have wonderfully gifted speakers and you're very knowledgeable as far as your teachers go and, and the people in your pews, so to speak. You're running over with enthusiasm. He says you're a loving church. But he says you're lacking one thing. You're sluggish in the ways that you're giving with your finances. It says you're sluggish in your financial giving. So if you look at verse 6, it actually says, We urged Titus that as he started, he would complete this act of grace among you. So he's urging Titus, hey, go to the church in Corinth and encourage them to be diligent about their giving because they were lacking in this one area. I think the lesson for us is plain. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Sluggish giving stunts spiritual growth. Sluggish giving stunts spiritual growth. It very well may be for some of you in this room this morning that you've stalled out in your journey with Christ. That you've kind of found yourself in a rut and you're kind of like, I don't know why I'm kind of stuck here in my growth with the Lord, but, but I just kind of, I'm not really moving along. It may very well be that you're stuck in your spiritual growth for the same reason the Corinthians were. 
They weren't moving to places of deeper spiritual maturity because they weren't willing to give in the way that, that, that Paul was teaching them the Scripture says we ought to give. And so there's no way that we can grow to the level of maturity that God wants for us if we're not committing our resources and our finances to God. I, I don't say that from some kind of ivory tower. Listen, I remember when Carrie and I first got married. I worked at a church part-time. I had a, another job. Um, and I worked at a church part-time. And I can remember for those two years while I was on staff as an intern at this church, I didn't even tithe to the church that I was working for. And you're like, wow, that's terrible. Well, here's why. I had never heard anybody consistently teach me that there was a need in my life to commit my finances to God. That may sound silly and trite. Sometimes we wonder, why aren't people giving? Sometimes it's because there's a lack of clarity from the pulpit on saying, this is how the Bible says we ought to give. So this morning, that's my goal and that's my mission, is that no one would be in this place and say, well, I don't really know why I should give or how I should give or what I'm giving toward. That was me. And I can remember when Carrie said, you know, we probably ought to tithe. And I said, you're probably right. Do you know how hard it was to take that checkbook out and open that thing? We still use checks, right? Right. I I know everything's debit cards and all that. But I took that checkbook out and I wrote that tithe check out. And Carrie and I just decided, you know, come what may, this is going to be the first fruits. We're going to give God the first we're going to give him what's right, not what's left. And so Carrie and I, we, we give at the beginning of the month here because we want to give at the start of our month before things crowd out our agenda and crowd out our affections because, listen, me, just like the rest of you, I can decide, oh, boy, I need that new pair of shoes, something awful. And guess what I may do? In a moment of weakness, a moment of temptation, if I don't give God what's first and what really belongs to him anyway, I may take that money and say, I'm going to go get me a pair of shoes. We need to give to God first. And I'm going to tell you what happened in our lives. What was obligation turned into an opportunity to worship, to serve Jesus, to say I love you by giving you what you rightfully own, but I want to show you that with my finances. See, the more our heart is controlled by and filled by the Spirit, you know what will happen? We will delight in giving. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this morning, if you're somebody that's not giving 5 or 8 or 10%, I'm not saying fake it till you make it, okay? I'm not telling you just to write that check and grit your teeth and throw that thing in the... I'm not saying that. I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. But here's what I'm saying. If you struggle to give to God in your heart, make it a goal this year to say, Lord... I'm going to take a step forward in this area of giving. And Lord, I'm only giving 5% right now. And I know you want me to do better than 5%. Lord, help me to give 7% this year. And then when you get to 7, say, Lord, help me to give 9. Then when you get to 9, Lord, help me to give 12. And don't stop at 10 just because, oh boy, I met the standard. We'll talk about that in a minute. But don't stop because you get to some figure I don't think that the Lord has, you know, got one of those little water measuring things like when it rains and it's like, oh, here they go. Look, Holy Spirit. Look, look, Jesus. They're, they're getting there. They're right there to t- nine and a half percent. I don't think that's how he measures our giving. Second Corinthians chapter nine talks about the heart. 
But if you're not giving in the way that you ought to, according to what Scripture teaches, you know what I'm saying to you this morning? Pray about it. Pray about it. Sit down with your budget. Look at how you're spending your money over a month. And say, Lord, I'm putting your money in some places that it shouldn't belong. And I want to give to you first and give to you most. Fourth, Jesus sets the pattern for our giving as Christians. Jesus sets the pattern for our giving as Christians. Look at verse 9. I love verse 9. For you know the grace, that word grace, remember means gift. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? He became poor. Why? So that through his poverty, we might become rich. I love this verse. This verse tells me that Jesus traded places with me when I was stuck in the dumpster of my sin. That he was rich in glory and I was poor in everything. And he traded places with me because there was no way I was going to become as rich as him spiritually, eternally speaking. It tells me I was bankrupt and he went bankrupt to bless me and he traded places with me. So as if the Macedonian believers were not a good enough example, Paul appeals to Jesus who sets the bar out of sight when it comes to surrender and serving and sacrifice. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. Mark 10.45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give my tithe, no, give my life as a ransom for many. You've seen the movies, right? You've seen the ransom note type movies where somebody gets captured by the bad guys and they say, you've got 24 hours to pay me X amount of dollars if you ever want to see so-and-so alive again. That person was in the possession of the enemy. They were not on neutral ground. They were in the possession, having been captured by the enemy. And if the good guys wanted to see him back, what do they have to do? Fork out the cash, right? Come up with the money some way. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, I think you will see that it tells us, before we came to Christ, that no one is on neutral ground. Our culture wants to tell us, oh, you're, you're a good little boy, you're a good little girl, you're fine, you're all right. If you go read Ephesians chapter 2, it says we're dead in our sins. It says we were under the power of the the spirit of disobedience and among the sons of disobedience and we were objects of God's wrath. That's not neutral ground. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy made us alive. Why? So He could share His riches with us for all eternity. So our pattern to follow in our financial giving ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything of Himself. So with a couple of minutes I have remaining this morning, I want to quickly speak to the issue of what I understand and, and I believe that the New Testament says about tithing. Because I think there's a good deal of confusion and, and disagreement, and that's fine, but I want to tell you kind of where I understand the Old and New Testaments coming together about what New Testament Christians are commanded to do when it comes to a 10% tithe and my hope here is to bring some clarity so maybe take these things home study them yourselves and do some thinking about them tithing actually began before the old testament law was around tithing was around 
before God gave the Old Testament law in the book of Exodus. So if you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, it talks about this. It says, Abraham tithed, which means he gave one-tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. So that happened in Genesis before the law was given in Exodus. When God later gave the law to Moses, Israel was not under a democracy. They were under what is called a theocracy. Okay, so you say, what is a theocracy? Write that word down. Go look it up. But here's what it is. A theocracy is a system of government in which the priests rule in the name of their God. So today we say we're under God, correct? We believe that we're, every human being is under God. But we do not live under a theocratic rule. If we did, then I would be the government official. Okay? And I would get to make all the rules and enforce those rules as a, a pastor or what we would say a priest. So the tithing system was set up in, a, in the Old Testament as a way for people to give and support their national government. So if you look closer, here's what you're going to find when you study this issue. The Old Testament law actually calls for multiple tithes. So I grew up thinking the Old Testament says you give your 10% and that's it. The Old Testament actually calls for several tithes. Listen to what they are. Number one, a tithe for the Levites, which were the priestly tribe. They were the ones that tended to the services. One also for the temple and the national feasts. And then one for the poor. So there were three tithes that the Old Testament prescribed for us, if we were Israelites, to give to. And that pushed the total to well over 20%, somewhere between, between 20 and 30%. So all of that money was given by the Israelites, those under the law, to support the national government and everything that they did. So when you come to the New Testament, here's what you're not going to find. You will not find any direct commands where it tells us to tithe a certain I've looked, I've studied, I've read, I've consulted commentaries. You're not going to find the New Testament saying you have to give X amount of uh, percentage. You're not going to find a legalistic system in the Old Testament. But I want you to listen to Tim Keller on this. He says, Jesus points out the Pharisees and how they faithfully tithe. So they would take their spices, even their spices, and they would separate them into tents. And they even tithed on their spices. He says, you, you tithe faithfully uh, to the Pharisees. He said, but you neglect the justice and the love of God. That's from Luke chapter 11. So you're good about your tithing when it comes to your possessions, but you're leaving off the weightier matters of the law, which is the justice and the love of God. And here's what he tells the Pharisees. He said, you should do the former, which is referring to tithing. You should do the former, but you should not neglect the latter. So Jesus in this this chapter, Luke 11, seems to assume that believers would tithe. He says, do the former, but don't leave off the latter. Because the Pharisees did everything they did so they could be seen by others. But Jesus knew their hearts. And so Keller says this. If we're going to think about our relationship to the Old Testament tithe, I would like to do it like this. He says, surely we are more blessed than the Old Testament saints. So why would we think that we can be any less generous. Christians should see the Old Testament tithe as a baseline, a minimum percentage for where we ought to start in our giving. So don't say, you know, I'm going to get to 10% and stop because that's what the New Testament teaches. You're not going to find that if you study and look. The real test, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, is the attitude of the heart. 
not the amount in the hand. Brenda talked about the lady that gave her two copper coins. She didn't give anything close to what the Old Testament says that she was supposed to give. But what did Jesus say about her, her gift? She gave more than anybody else that day. So the rich people would walk in with bags of money and they would toss it lightly into the air and when it would land in the coffer, it would make this big loud sound. And it told everybody that they just gave a big sum of money to the synagogue. And this little lady comes in with two little coins and drops them. Clink, clink. There was nothing in the amount in her hand that was amazing. It was the attitude of her heart. And Paul seems to tell us that the attitude of the heart, not the amount in the hand, is what God is most concerned about. So some of you are asking the question now, well, should we tithe? Yes, I believe we should tithe. But here's the problem. We don't get to the tithe and then stop. God may be calling us at a certain season of our time to get to a 10% and say, you know what, I'm going to give 20%. I can live off of 80, I can give 20 John Wesley, as his uh, money and his income began to increase, he got to a place where he was giving away almost everything he had and living off a very small percentage because he decided, you know what, God has been so generous to me, I don't know why I'm going to stop at some standard as if I've met the requirements that I ought to. So if we're asking the question, do we have to tithe, I would say this, we're asking the wrong question. It's not do we have to tithe, Oswald Chambers says the basic question is not how much of our money we should give to God, but how much of God's money we should keep for ourselves. Isn't that good? It's not how much of our money we give to God, but how much of His money I'm going to hold on to for myself. So what if Jesus said to the Father, Father, do I really have to give those people down there 10%? Do you mean it? That's not what He said. He said, I came to serve and I came to give my life as a ransom. So you remember the song, right? The old song, Jesus paid his tithe. All to him, no. Jesus paid it all. All to him, we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but what did Jesus do? He washed it. White as snow. With what? The offering of his life. He's the pattern for our giving. So let me ask you a couple of questions today as we get ready to close. When you look at your current level of giving right now, what's hindering your giving today? What's holding you back from giving the way that the Scripture teaches and what God would have you to give? Are you stuck because you've got it backwards and you're saying, how much should I give to God instead of how much of God's money should I keep for myself? Maybe you say, I'm just not going to have enough to pay my bills. And I don't know how everything's going to work out this next month. Maybe you've got wrong ideas about ownership and possessions and material things. Or maybe it's this. Maybe your heart's not surrendered to Jesus Christ. And that's the very first thing that has to happen before you put your hand in that offering plate the next time. That's first. That's most important. That our lives are surrendered to God. That He has all of us because He gave all of Himself to us. That's what He wants is our hearts. Maybe culture is your issue. 
Maybe the world around you is squeezing you into its mold and you're being conformed to the world and the age around you and it's redefining. Culture is telling you, here's what you need. You need that pair of shoes. You need that tag on the back of your shirt to say a certain thing. You need a certain crowd of friends around you that make a certain amount of money so you feel a certain way. You need, need, need. Culture doesn't define necessities for Christians. It ought not to. God defines what are necessities for believers. I heard a pastor tell about when he started out his preaching ministry. His dad had been a deacon. And his dad came to him and he gave him some advice. He said this. He said, son, he said, when you preach on giving, he said, remember this. He said, son, if the Lord gets the heart, he gets the pocketbook. Don't aim low. Isn't that good? If the Lord gets the heart, all of the heart, He gets the pocketbook. Don't aim low. So I'm not aiming at your pocketbook this morning. I don't think God's Word is aiming at your pocketbook. It always aims at the heart first. So let me just leave you with a question before we pray. Who's got your heart today? How much of your heart today? Who has it? Is it the Lord? Is it you? Is it culture? Is it your stuff? Who has your heart today? Let's close in prayer.